This is your Tuesday Daily Delivery. I am Michael Rand. How is everybody doing today? Hope you are doing great. Weather's getting a little bit better. Let's get excited, you guys. I can feel it coming. It's around the corner. We're going to get there. We are going to make it. Baseball is in the air. And that is why Rochelle Olson from the Star Tribune will join me in a little bit to talk about the Twins and their hopes for attendance at Target Field this season. They're proposing 10,000 fans at the start and uh, maybe a gradual increase from there. Rochelle and I will talk about that more in a little bit. I'll also welcome in Nick Kelly, uh, who wrote a story for the Star Tribune about youth sports and kind of the conundrum facing different uh, you know organizations as they try to navigate COVID and, and host tournaments in, in a way that they hope is safe. Uh, but first, what did I miss? You missed the introduction of another Timberwolves head coach. And that is an occasion you can kind of set your watch to or maybe set your calendar to at least to uh, once every one and a half years. Yeah, since 2007, Timberwolves are now on their 10th different head coach. I'll read them quickly. Uh, 2007 is when Dwayne Casey was fired. Randy Whitman takes over. Kevin McHale replaces him a little while later. Kurt Rambis for a couple bad years. Rick Adelman never knew he had it so good. Flip Saunders, the late Flip Saunders, in for one season before his unfortunate passing. Sam Mitchell takes over. Then Tom Thibodeau. Then Ryan Saunders, son of Flip, who was just fired on Sunday. And now Chris Finch. So what does that tell you? Well, it's an organization that's been trying to get it right for a long time and hasn't been able to do so. I don't think that's any secret that that's the case here. But a couple things from Chris Finch's introductory news conference that struck me um, on, on Monday night. Uh, the biggest one being kind of this notion of Carl Anthony Towns and how they plan to use him. You know, Finch is known as an offensive-minded head coach. Um, if there's been one thing that stood out since Towns returned from, you know, both the injury and the COVID list earlier this season, now he's played seven games since coming back. Wolves are one and six in those games. A lot of them have been close games. A lot of them, you know, one or one or two possession games in the fourth quarter where if things go one way or the other, uh, the Wolves pull out a win. The thing that's really stood out to me in those games is kind of this push-pull between Towns and Anthony Edwards as they try to figure out who is going to take, you know, the big shots. And statistics-wise, it's pretty similar. Fourth quarters of the last seven games, Anthony Edwards taken 23 shots. Carl Anthony Towns taken 27 uh, but Cats make it, make Cats made 16 of his shots. Edwards has only made eight. There's a pretty big difference in their field goal makes. Um, Edwards, of course, is a rookie trying to figure things out. But you know, you remember the game last week when Carlton Towns didn't try a field goal in the fourth quarter when Edwards was you know kind of on a little bit of a roll. That was against the Lakers. You know, if you listen to the whole news conference, there was a definite theme emerging that they need to get back to being. Cats team. And here's a quote from Finch that I want to play for you uh, from that news conference. I spoke with him last night. Uh, he's, you know, he's obviously it's a tough, tough moment for anyone when the, there's a change in an organization. Um, but, I, I, you know, we, we talked about how I think we can get him to back to being the center point of this team. Um, and, you know, you don't often get that type of skill package in this league and it's it's when you have it and the way the game is trended in the modern game with the spacing and the skill and the speed like he should be at the center of everything 
you know, on some of the scheme adjustments, I imagine will take a little while. The Wolves have five games coming up here pretty quick, including back-to-backs, uh, Milwaukee and Chicago these next two nights, um, Tuesday against Milwaukee, Wednesday against Chicago. Then they get a little bit of a break with the, the NBA, you know, first half, second half schedule. So you maybe see some more of those scheme changes, but immediately I imagine we might see a difference in how Carl Anthony Towns is used um, and especially in the fourth quarter of a close game. So watch for that going forward, uh, especially in tonight's game. I'm Nyla Jean Myers, Senior Assistant Sports Editor at the Star Tribune. Thank you for listening to Strip Sports Daily Delivery. This work is made possible by our Star Tribune subscribers. For unlimited access to the articles mentioned in this podcast and our coverage of Minnesota sports from pros to preps, go to startribune.com slash subscribe. Really happy to be joined on the Daily Delivery Podcast today by Rochelle Olson, Star Tribune reporter, covers a lot of stadium issues for the Star Tribune and wrote in Monday's paper about the Twins' hopes for having 10,000 fans at Target Field at the start of the season. Rochelle, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? It's 40 degrees and sunny. We got to go for it, right? We're loving it. We're loving it right yeah. now. Yeah. Um, what... Uh, so your story was interesting. I read it, um, obviously, and I'm I'm just curious. Like, Twins want ten thousand fans at the opener. What, where where do we stand with that? What's the what's the proposal in particular? And what what do we what are the hurdles they need to clear before that becomes the reality they want it to be? Okay. Well, first of all, saying the Twins want ten thousand fans at the opener is a little bit optimistic. I'm not. I'm not even sure. I mean, the twins would like a full ballpark at the opener. There's no doubt about that, but I think, um, I think that is a best case scenario. The 10,000 fans, I, I guess I wouldn't necessarily hold my breath for 10,000 fans at the opener. You know, they submitted a plan to the governor last week. Um, and the governor it has been optimistic about getting fans at target field this season, but they are obviously not ready to make any sort of commitments about what sort of crowd can be there on opening day. I mean, there's just too much, there's too much uncertainty right now regarding the virus variants, how many vaccines are in the pipeline, how they're going to, how many they're going to have in people's arms by the time by April 8th, um, so they're not going to make, I mean, you talk about milestones or what, there's no, to my knowledge, um, there aren't any hard and fast like goalposts goal or, or milestones right. that we have to hit in terms of, um, in terms of vaccines. I guess it's at this point, maybe it's like everything this past year, it's kind of like, they'll know it when they see it, or they may have some idea. They may have some internal targets. I don't know they're, they're not sharing them with us, but you know, I mean, there's been, I mean, look at the, the past week alone, all this problems with the vaccine supply chain and weather in other parts of the country. And, and yeah, the numbers have been looking good in terms of the virus for a couple of days now and had a day of no deaths, but, um, but they're not going to make any decisions on this until they have to. Um, and that time is not now, but the, like I was saying, the governor has been optimistic about this season. He has talked about uh, when he shut the state down, you know, when we went into a harder shutdown in early December, he said, you know, pain now, gain later. We'll, right. I like our chances for for baseball, but whether that's, you know, midsummer baseball, late summer baseball, or, um, you know, the Twins now have all this upgraded heating, heating equipment at Target Field that they put in, I think that was in the 2019 offseason. 
So we're ready for, we're, we may be ready to have for a full ballpark in time for the World Series. What do you think is a realistic timeline then, not just for opening day, but if you're, if you're the twins or you're the governor's office and you're thinking about how they might work together, what's the, what's the if, if 10,000 on opening day is more of a, a hope than it is a, a plan, where, where do you, like, is it later that you, you figure later this summer? I mean, if you're a twins fan, you're probably wondering when, when can I go to a game and when can I do it safely? I wouldn't be surprised to see them ease into it. If I'm optimistic, I'm going to say there will be fans there on opening day, but maybe not 10,000. Again, I'm not an epidemiologist. No, of course. I'm not a planner. Um, but I, I wouldn't be surprised to see some fans there, whether that's 5,000, 6, 7, 8, I don't know. Um, the, the governor's been optimistic. Um, things right now look pretty good. Guess yeah. it just depends if they continue to look good, but I mean, I I I feel like there are going to be fans. I mean, I the Twins are openly talking about you know sort of a graded return. I mean, I think they're expecting to start slowly and hopefully kind of build through the summer. I mean, they're openly talking about a hundred percent by the end of the season. I don't think that's out of the question from everything I know. Yeah, so much of this is we don't know. Um, that said, the St. Paul Saints, who are now their AAA affiliate, had permission to do 1,500 fans a game towards the end of last season. That seemed to go okay. Um, the Twins are hoping to have, what, 2,400 fans or you know the, the capacity for 2,400 fans at their spring training games down in Florida. What what are they what did they learn anything from what the Saints did, or are they hoping to learn anything from from the experience down in down in Florida in terms of you know how to you know navigate that what what kind of what they can do to 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 try to make it work as best they can? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think I think they're always learning. Um, I mean, even um, I was a little surprised in reporting this story uh, when they they announced this new partnership with 3M. And I, I did talk to 3M about it and 3M, they're literally, you know, going around the ballpark with them. Um, you know, they're, they're doing signage, they're doing cleaning, cleaning um, protocols, but also remember half of, half of 3M's like 90,000, some employees worldwide work, work in factories. And so 3M has since last June had people working on factory floors and had to go into these factories around the world. And they literally talked about they went through how do people get in the building? How do people leave the building? Which direction are you facing throughout the day? So the twins are working with them on that. Um, and so they've got that component. But in addition, yes, they are learning from the Saints. The Saints, however, did um, last summer. One of the things the Saints did was pods where you know, you go into the ballpark, you're using, you got a designated restroom, you got a designated interest, and you never sort of leave this little pod of pod that you're in. Um, the Vikings, by the way, proposed that last year, but um, weren't, weren't able to get permission for that um, at U.S. Bank Stadium. Um, that is not what the Twins are proposing for Target Field, um, nor is that what they're using down in Florida. It's uh, you get a ticket, you get in, you're, you're free to roam. But what they are talking about that they are trying down in Florida now that they will that they also have proposed for Target Field is tickets would be sold in groups of two or four. So if you uh, you and I and your daughter want to go to a game, um, we'd have to buy a ticket for four and one of them could go unused or we could find somebody to use. Or if I want to go alone, I have to buy two. 
and they've they've got that all like they're doing down in Florida. They're um, they figured out the the proper distancing among groups six feet, and then the seats that aren't being used, they are using literally they are zip tied in the upright position. So not only can they not be used, but you don't have to touch them as you pass by to get in and out of the rows. Um, so they're doing that and they've got all sorts of other things um, down in Florida in terms of they've changed the concessions. You know, there's no pumps. Every drink has a, a lid on it. There's touchless parking. You know, you don't, you're not paying somebody in the parking lot there handing over cash. You don't do that down there. Yeah. So I'm sure I think they're constantly, I mean, nobody, <laughs> nobody wants fans back in the stands more than the twins. So I think they're constantly working on it. You quoted a twins official in your story Monday. Do you get the sense that they're, are they optimistic or are they, you know, is it more of a, a hope than optimism at this point about, uh, about, about all that? I think they're optimistic, you know, which leads me to believe that um, I, I think with the Vikings last year, it always felt like, um, and, and I talked to them quite a bit about their plan. I mean, they, they worked really hard on plans, uh, the Vikings, you know, beginning last spring and they were never able to get fans into that building or work for the whole season. Right. And I know they worked really hard, but there was never a sense. Um, I think they were, there was, a, I always had a sense that they were kind of resigned um, that it wasn't going to happen last year for them, but I don't, I, with the twins, I think they're optimistic. Everything I think, which leads me to believe that maybe they're getting, you know, back, back, back room signals from the governor's office that, yeah, we can make this, you know, if things continue to progress, we can make this happen. I definitely think they're optimistic. I definitely think, and the governor said it publicly on multiple occasions that he expects to be at a game with his brother-in-law. Yeah. Um, so I, I think there's, I definitely think they're optimistic. But they're waiting. Last thing for you, they're waiting for any kind of official, you know, word from the governor's office. Your story indicated the twins, you know, are operating on a little bit of a tight timeline. They want to be able to get the stadium up to, you know, kind of back to working capacity. They got to hire workers if there's going to be fans, things like that. But at the same time, governor's office not, you know, committing to anything and wanting to see this play out. So the timeline seems like they're, they're a little bit on two different timelines. Where do those converge? Do you think? When do we know a little bit more about this? Well, as uh, as the twins told me last week, um, you know, remember that building's been <laughs> essentially mothballed since um, fall of 2019, um, and they've so they've got all their equipment and concessions. Um, you know, they've they've been in storage, and they need to get those out. And the twins told me they need a month to get everything out everything up and working in terms of concessions. Um, and I don't know if that's like, well, I, I assume it's a pre, it's a pretty big lift, but that's um, the home openers, March 8th, the month before the, or sorry, April 8th is a month before that. Um, it's early March. You know, I'm sure they can, I'm sure, <clears throat> I'm sure they might be able to push that a little bit. Um, but definitely I would expect at least a couple weeks before April 8th. Um, there, there's going to have to be some sort of indication about crowd and yes or no. Well, it's an interesting story. I mean, one that we're going to play out, not just with the twins. I'm sure Minnesota United is interested to see how this works. I'm sure, you know, the other teams that play indoors, the, the Lynx, you've got, uh, you know, other teams like, uh, you know, Wild, the Wolves eventually. 
wanting to know how this is going to work in future seasons too. But for now, the twins, you know, the outdoors seems like they've got a good chance at least to, to get some fans at the start. And we'll see where we'll see where it goes. Rochelle, interesting story. Read it on startribune.com if you haven't already. And uh, thanks for joining me here today on the daily delivery podcast. Thank you. Interesting stuff from Rochelle. You can still read her story on startribune.com. That was in Monday's newspaper, still obviously online. And I asked people you know, on Twitter after, you know, after talking to her and kind of seeing this proposal, are you comfortable? Would you want to go to this, go to a game with 10,000 fans? Are you ready for that? And kind of pretty good mix. Like half of the people said, you know, no, not until I'm vaccinated. Um, you know, I'd love to go, but no, um, not until I get the vaccine. Some people said, yeah, sign me up right away. I would love to go. Um, the, the most amusing one I thought was from uh, at Leander Alphabet, who who writes, to paraphrase at Jane Sports, I wouldn't want to go to a game with 10,000 people who would want to go to a game with 10,000 people. And that, that's kind of where my head's at right now. I think we're so close. I, I could wait a little while longer to, to go to a game with that many people in attendance, even if it's outdoors. I feel a little bit safer Actually, quite a bit safer, I guess, with an outdoor environment than an indoor environment based on all the science we know. But uh, I probably would be more interested in waiting till I got the vaccine before I really went all in on something like that. I'd like to welcome to the podcast right now, Nick Kelly. Nick has a story in Monday's Star Tribune about youth sports and all of the uh, kind of the machinations of tournaments and different different rules in different places. You know, who can play, who can play where, tournaments, especially youth basketball. Um, really interesting story. So I'm glad that Nick can come on and uh, expand on that a little bit here. Nick, how are you doing? Doing well. Great to be with you, Michael. All right. Thanks again for, for being here. Um, I want to jump right in. Your, your story is well reported. A lot of good information in it. Maybe maybe give me a broad overview of, you know, what the, what the issue is here or, or how different cities and different youth associations are are handling trying to play sports in you know through the through the era of covid because it seems like there's a lot of different you know different policies that's creating some you know some hassles is probably the wrong word but different you know different sets of rules in different places yeah there's been some different interpretations is kind of the phrase that's been thrown out there because the department of health has made it clear okay these are the guidelines these are the restrictions you know, the, government, the governor's orders in terms of executive orders, in terms of what people can and can't do. So sports were brought back from that pause, youth sports were brought back uh, January 4th practices. And then it was the 14th, I believe, that games could happen again. But that has not been the case entirely everywhere that you look. There are some inconsistencies and, and not even necessarily, it's not breaking of rules. It's not that people are going above what you're allowed to do. It's more of uh, some be some people being more conservative. So you're seeing some cities that because the focus of the story was mainly uh, traveling basketball yeah. and looking at what some cities were allowing. Whereas you've got a city like Shakopee that their school district said, "Hey, you can have tournaments." Now, of course, there are some significant restrictions, meaning everyone's wearing masks. You can only enter and exit in certain places. The moment your game is done, you have to leave the building. And so there's a lot of different changes. They're sanitizing things. So th there's definitely some different looks. But the tournament, by and large, they have spectators, they have, you know, all these kids playing games. And so it doesn't look terribly different. But then you also have some cities that the school districts, because the ones who control the facilities are the ones who basically are the ones interpreting uh, the guidelines. And so you have some school districts saying, we don't feel comfortable, we don't want to contribute to any rise in COVID-19 cases. And so we're going to say, 
you know, for example, Bloomington, they said that we're going to tie this to case rate. We're going to tie this to rate of cases in the area. And if it dips below a certain number, you can have practices. If it dips below another certain number, you can have games or you can have tournaments. And so they decided to make it less of an arbitrary thing and more of a let's tie this to numbers. And so you're just seeing different interpretations and, and frankly, based on what kind of facilities they have, how they're going to use them. Seems like youth sports, you know, since probably the maybe in the fall in particular, as we, you know, we started to started to think about what's safe, what's not safe, even going back to the summer during the pandemic, during the pandemic, that's, that's been a hot button issue with a lot of people. Did you get the sense that there's, even if this story wasn't jam packed with emotion, it's more of a, if this is more of a, you know, what can you do? What are different places doing? Did you get the sense of, of how important this is to people and, and how this, you know, plays out in different communities and, and can get, can get a little emotional at times? Yeah, I mean, for anyone, youth sports are important for many reasons. For kids, it's you know, parents enjoying being able to watch their kids, and so there's a lot of a lot of passion and emotion uh, tied to these things. Which, in a lot of these people, are, you know, they're not trying to make these decisions out of spite. It's just they're trying to make the best decision they can make considering the circumstances in the pandemic, and and so there are some people that for, these tournaments are so important to them. If you're a kid who's ever played traveling basketball, you know how fun these tournaments are. You get to hang out with your friends for an entire weekend. Maybe you traveled somewhere to, you know, stay in a hotel. And so, I mean, these are these are where some memories and some friendships are really made. And not only for the, the kids, but also the parents. And so when you take that away, you can't gather, you can't, you know, you can't do any of that stuff. So that takes away some of the fun of it. But some of the maybe more contentious points is some places don't allow spectators just to you know, reduce the number of people yeah, of course. in the facility. Um, there has been a little bit of uh, frustration, I think, among some folks because a tournament like Edina, they, they had their tournaments. So they, they still had, everyone could you know, participate still, but uh, basically no spectators. They had three wristbands per team and said, you know, hey, if you, th if you have three coaches, those three coaches get the wristbands kind of thing. Um, so you decide how you, how you divvy up those wristbands. And you tell there were some frustrations with, and it's not just them, other places have been the same, but, and they, they made a decision like that because they did not have, for example, you're supposed to have 12 feet between the, the spectators and the participants. If not, you have to include the participants in your capacity count. And the capacity count is not very high at all. And so Udani made that decision because in some of their gyms that they'd have to use, in a normal year, you have parents and, and family basically on the edge of the court. You know, if you, I don't know if you've ever been to a traveling basketball tournament, sure. but uh, there's, they're not exactly built for hundreds of fans. And so you're right on top of it. So that would not work. And so they decided to be consistent. And that is, you know, places that don't allow spectators, of course, parents aren't going aren't gonna to love that. But there have been some aspects where they've been nimble and they've tried to combat some of the, the questions or issues or concerns that people have. So they, for example, Edina had, they had a streaming service where they streamed every game. You could watch it from your car as a lot of parents did, or grandma in California, for example, could watch her grandson play or her granddaughter play. And so there are some nice benefits that way that we've seen throughout the Metro. But um, another thing too, that the biggest concern among parents is that not just being able to see their kid, but in case their kid gets injured, if they're not there in the stands, uh, there have been some frustrations about that. But one way that Edina tried to combat it is they said, hey, we have, uh, Twin Cities Orthopedics trainer on every single court. And if, if your kid gets hurt, we will call you immediately. You are allowed inside the facility. And so it's been just groups trying to make the most of situations. And I think that most people are, most parents are fairly understanding, even though there are some strong emotions tied to it. 
financially, I imagine this is a question too, because, you know, nobody's, you know, there's not billion dollar TV contracts in youth sports that are driving <laughs> the revenues, but they're, you know, they're, sure. these, these tournaments can be money makers for associations, for various, you know, for various venues. How, how is that piece of it played out as, as, you know, as they're trying to figure out not only what's safe, but you know, how, how to, how to manage, you know, city by city. Yeah. That's the trickiest thing is not only do parents and the people involved in these decisions want the kids to be able to get out there just for all the benefits that includes, but they need these tournaments. They really do because for most of these associations, th this is their moneymaker and not that they have to be making uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars, but the reason they need that money is because that tends to help with maybe keeping costs down for participation. And so when they're losing the, the revenue they're getting from basically the entry fees, what, what teams pay and associations pay. I mean, you're talking like, for example, Bloomington, they, they're, you know, they, I think their number was around like 450 or so for each, each team that signs up. And you have 170 teams at a normal tournament for some of these tournaments. Now they're going to have less because they had to reschedule their tournament because now the, the case rate is low enough, but yeah, there is, there's definitely trying to look at how do we minimize the damage financially? Because the reality is in a pandemic too, everyone has had to make sacrifices. It's not a normal year. Things can't be perfect. And, and I think associations realize that, but also how do we minimize that impact? And so, because the other thing too, is if the, what we've seen is that some districts, because they haven't allowed the being played in their gyms, these games being played in their gyms, these associations have been like, well, we need these tournaments. We, we need to have something. So we are going to say, for example, we are Spring Lake Park. We're going to go host at Forest Lake because they're hosting their school district said you can have tournaments. And so we're going to go there. And Bloomington, fortunately for them, they are going to be able to have their tournaments in Bloomington facilities, because if not, they had plans to go to Shakopee and Burnsville and host there. And that would have cost about four times as much to rent those gyms. So I imagine some of these places, some of the cities and, and venues that are that are saying, no, we don't want to do this. I imagine some of the mentality is not only, you know, the current case rate, but hey, vaccines are on the horizon. If we wait a little while longer, um, we can do this even even more safely. How, how does the safety kind of push pull play out? And, and, you know, even in these places that are having a lot of teams in there, what, what are the safety precautions and concerns still that, that are that are ongoing? Yeah, I think this whole thing has been a marathon, not a sprint. And so there's a lot of a lot of groups that are, yeah, let's do the safe thing. Let's let's find ways to make sure we minimize risk, but also they want and need these tournaments. And so they're they're still finding ways to do that. And I think that uh, maybe we're, you know there's waiting for hopefully things get a little bit better with the vaccine. And I think that was the case mainly with when we had such a spike around, what was it, November, December, all the, all the months <laughs> have yeah. all together in my head, but I think it was around that time around the holidays then where there were some serious concerns about the increases in cases of COVID-19. And so now that things are at a better level, like talked about Bloomington, now that it's dipped to the level that, hey, they said, hey, this is the number of, of rare cases for the, the area that we, can, that we can have tournaments. Now that it's to that point, they're still, like I said, following all the guidelines in terms of hey, you have to wear masks at all time, you still have got to enter at this point, you know, things like that. But I think at the end of the day, it's just, hey, we're gonna follow the guidelines that the health department and also the Minnesota Youth Basketball Alliance is another group that's kind of helped regulate, hey, this is what you should do, here's best practices, things like that. And it's like, as long as, long as we're following that, we don't know how long this is gonna go on for. And so as long as we're not contributing to making this a lot worse, we're, we're gonna try to do what we can to have these tournaments. Nick Kelly, great stuff. Appreciate you joining the 
podcast today. And uh, yeah, look for Nick's story, Star Tribune, startribune.com. And uh, Nick, we'll talk to you down the road, okay? Yeah, thanks, Michael. Have a good one. You too. Thanks. Interesting stuff from Nick. Really enjoyed reading his story and his work uh, in the Star Tribune. Um, I think the biggest takeaway for me is that it's not one thing. It's that these next few, you know, three, six, nine months, I guess, are going to really be defined by kind of this inching forward and who's comfortable with what and, and how, you know, how we navigate things seeming to get better and making sure we're not taking steps back and, and really you know, really uh, getting back to normal and not half measures with with COVID that that we have taken in in certain steps here. Let's end things with the cooler. The wild cannot be ignored. They lost four nothing in that first game out of COVID protocol. Since then, three straight wins over the Ducks and Sharks by a combined score of fourteen to four. Particularly impressive last night, winning six to two over the Sharks and uh, getting a ton of offense, good goaltending from Capo Kakinen. All our lines are firing right now. Fun team to watch. I don't know if you watched the game. It was on late. Uh, I was up late uh, you know, watching that, doing some, other, doing some other work, but really enjoyed watching that game. I'm enamored still of watching Kirill Kaprizov do his thing. And, uh, you know, this is a fun team to watch right now. So uh, they bear watching. I'm curious. I'm, I'm curious to watch this team right now. I, 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 have, like I said at the start, I've been more curious about this team than I have been about a lot of wild teams. And the, the COVID pause kind of, you know, stopped me a little bit. You know, kind of I lost them in my consciousness a little, a little bit. They are firmly back in there, and I'm back on uh, back on that train, watching them and seeing seeing how they do this season. That'll do it for today. A lot of good stuff coming up the rest of the week. I got Chip Scoggins on Wednesday show to break down a whole bunch of kind of the biggest stories in Minnesota sports right now. I'm expecting to have Brock Vereen, former Gophers defensive back, on Thursday's show to give you an inside look at the NFL Combine and NFL draft process. Uh, Brock, really good guy, and that, that should be a fun interview for you guys. Friday show, hoping to have Chris Hine on to talk a little bit more Timberwolves after we get a little bit more of a sense of, of the Chris Finch coaching style and coaching era and some really good stuff coming up next week as well. So excited for that. Thank you for listening today to the Daily Delivery Podcast. As always, Read Start Tribune, StartTribune.com, subscribe to this podcast, and we will see you again tomorrow. 